in this life as Christians. I've titled this sermon this evening, What About Tomorrow? I think maybe we ought to ask that question from, from time to time. What about tomorrow? Now the future is always something that is uh, really nothing more than uncertain, right? We're not sure what tomorrow will bring. We have an idea. We, we must plan for tomorrow, but we must live in today because we can never be assured if tomorrow will even come. But we have to be prepared in some way. Also, we can never know for certain what challenges that tomorrow might bring. So therefore, we must live in today in such a way that makes tomorrow a better time if it does come. William Arthur Ward said, The past gives experience and memories. The present gives us challenges and opportunities. The future gives us vision and hope. And I believe those are principles by which we ought to live every aspect of our lives. What does the future hold for individual Christians and the congregations where they labor? What does the future hold? Well, we're not for sure. We're not certain what the future holds. Now, we can identify successes in converting the lost. We can identify successes in showing love for love one for another. And both of those are principles that God has asked us to fulfill. But like most things, if we're going to continue to be successful and enjoy even more success, we must have a plan by which we follow. We must be looking at tomorrow and asking, well, what about tomorrow? What can I do today to make tomorrow, if it comes, a success? Now again, uh, we cannot say for sure what tomorrow holds, but I know what I can do in the present, right? We can prepare ourselves in such a way that, that would uh, bring about success. As we think about tomorrow and how we can make the most of it, I want us to look at the passage under consideration that we read in uh, Paul's letter. And I think when we look at it and we look at what Paul was able to do and we uncover the things that he spoke of, the things that, that he encouraged his reader to do, I think that we can uh, come to a better understanding of what about tomorrow. I think that Paul was able to, and I think he instructs us to, to look to tomorrow. That's our first point. He wants us to look to tomorrow. Now, if we look at tomorrow in the way that God intends, we will notice in our lives, and it will be evident to everyone else, that we have a dedication to God. We look to tomorrow in hope that it will come. We look to tomorrow that we will prepare ourselves in such a way that we'll be successful, but above all things, we'll see dedication in our lives and everyone else will see dedication. Paul could have said in his letter, I command you. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, I beseech you. In essence, Paul said, I beg you to be holy. I beg you to be faithful. He wanted them to do that, but he wanted them to do it because God was holy and they needed to present themselves as holy. His reasoning was that after all God had done for us, we ought to be able to present ourselves as holy 
for him. Now, I believe the person who fails to be obedient does so because he does not surrender himself and there is no dedication in his or her life to God. King Saul refused to surrender himself to God when he offered unauthorized worship to God in 1 Samuel 13, 8 through 16. He wasn't supposed to offer sacrifice to God. That wasn't his job. That's not the plan God had put into place. And because of that, his behavior caused him to lose the very kingdom that God had blessed him with and his soul. He never repented of the things that he did. So we have to have this dedication. And as Paul looked to tomorrow, he had dedication. But notice what he said. How do we demonstrate that dedication? Well, he talked about separation, didn't he? We have to be separated from the sins of this world. Because of that, we can come to understand intimately dedication. But it requires separation. Notice what Jesus said when his followers were listening to him and he was trying to comfort them in John 14, 1 through 3. Very familiar with it. And he told them, in essence, he said, don't be worried. Don't be troubled. Don't be saddened. You believe in God, believe in me. He said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And he said, if I do that, I'll come again because I will gather you unto myself, right? Now, who's he going to gather to himself? Is he going to gather the world, those who live in the world, those who behave like the world? No, he's going to gather those who have separated themselves from the world and that can be seen in the dedication that is presented As Paul looked at tomorrow, and I think he wants us to do the same thing, we see dedication, separation, but how are we separated? Transformation, right? We see that in this very passage. It may not, at first glance, we read this passage, Paul may not be, or it may not strike us that Paul's talking about something happening tomorrow. Well, we're preparing for tomorrow by what we're doing today, right? We're going to be dedicated. We're going to be separated. Now we see this transformation. Here's the thing. Every person is either a conformer or a transformer. We will either conform to this world or we will transform or change ourselves to fit what God wants. Those who... uh, Obey the gospel, they will mature, they will grow. We talked about that this morning. They will go on to perfection or completeness in Christ or they'll eventually fall away. You know, we'll grow or we'll die, right? A plant will either grow or it will die. A baby, after it is born, it will grow or it will die. And uh, we understand that. So Paul said that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. That happens on a daily basis, doesn't it? That happened. It has to happen on a daily basis. We have to, for our physical bodies, we have to eat every day. We have to be nourished every day. We have to be renewed and refreshed every day. And when we renew our minds, we do not give Satan access to our hearts. That's, that's primary, isn't it? That's fundamental. We're either growing or we're not. And if we're renewing our minds... By the word of God, we're not allowing Satan access to us. Notice what Paul encouraged the Ephesian brethren in Ephesians 4, beginning with 24. He asked those brethren to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. 
Wherefore put away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Never give Satan an opportunity. And if we neglect our spiritual welfare, our renewing, our growth, our nourishment, we're giving him an opportunity to tempt us into sin. So as we look at tomorrow, Paul said, you can't stop there. What about tomorrow? Well, look to tomorrow, but live today. That's our second point. We have to live today. And how do we begin with that? How does the Christian live in today? Well, we begin with evaluation. We have to look into ourselves. We have to understand where we are in our relationship to God. Paul demanded this, 2 Corinthians 13, beginning with 5. He said, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not that uh, your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Now, how could Paul have handled that? And what's the back story? Well, they said, Paul, you're not a true apostle. You came in here and you're a con artist, and because that's what the true apostles told us. Well, false apostles came into Corinth, began to denigrate Paul, convinced the congregation there to turn against him. And what could Paul have done? Paul could have come to them with the power of an apostle and they would have understood it in a very intimate way just like Peter demonstrated it to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. But that's not what he did. Instead, he tried to reason with them. He said, look, don't try to prove me. Prove yourself. Examine yourselves. Look at the evidence. You know what the truth is. Now you have someone coming in teaching something that is opposite of that. Examine yourself. Don't you know whether you're in the faith or not? Of course they did. Of course they did. But he said, the problem is yours and it's not mine. You need to come to that understanding. So there has to be an evaluation. I think often we become too concerned with others and we ignore our own shortcomings and our own issues. That's what was happening in Corinth. They became so concerned and so irritated for whatever reason concerning Paul that they completely overlooked where they were. They were not having proper evaluation. But if the church is going to flourish tomorrow and the saints are going to remain faithful today, we have to have this evaluation. We have to look at ourselves. But unless we have cooperation, we cannot accomplish all that we could accomplish. Luke described the the Christian organization, the church, the, the newly established church of Christ on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 verse 44, as being together and having all things common. Now what we read about in Acts is a voluntary cooperation between Christians. We help those who are in need, right? We see that in Galatians chapter 6. Do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. We can help people who are non-Christian. We do it, we do it a lot, right? Uh, White Oak is a very benevolent 
group of Christians. And we help those who are uh, not Christians. We don't base our help on whether or not they are faithful or they are a Christian. We base our, our help on whether they are truly in need, right? And we might be able to even use that as an opportunity to teach someone the gospel. Now, we're going to help especially those of the household of faith, but we help all people when we have the opportunity. So what we see here is this voluntary cooperation. It's not, it wasn't mandatory. They weren't commanded by the apostles to sell everything you've got, put it into one big community pile, and everybody take what they need. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's not taught in the New Testament. In fact, Paul said, if you wouldn't work, neither should you eat, he told those in Thessalonica. Right? So we we have to put everything together. This was a voluntary cooperation. Now, in Paul's letter, we see this evaluation, this cooperation. Let me tell you what's necessary if we're going to have proper evaluation. We're going to have proper cooperation. We've got to have participation. We've got to have help. Right? We have to jump in there. We have to do things. If tomorrow is going to be bright, we have to have all hands on deck. right? We have to have those things that are necessary. He commanded, Paul did, to those in Rome, let love be without dissimulation. That means without hypocrisy, without play acting. You know, we need to do more than just say I love you. We need to demonstrate our love for each other. Now, we need to say I love you. That has to be a part of it, right? That's necessary. But, notice what John said, uh, 1 John three eighteen. John encouraged, he said, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. He's not saying, don't say I love you. What he's saying is, don't let that be the only way that you show your love, is by saying I love you. There has to be works and deeds and, and things like that. So it's like repentance, right? Uh, bring forth Uh, works worthy of repentance. And love is the same way. So as as Paul thought about tomorrow, well, what about tomorrow? He said, well, look to tomorrow. He said, live in today. So he could look, he could live, but here's our final point. He also could love. Now, as we do that, sometimes we're going to encounter opposition. We're going to encounter opposition. Christians have both blessings and battles with which they are faced. Paul taught us how to properly respond to those who oppose God and His people. We have to be careful how we handle situations. Christians are expected to conduct themselves in the noblest fashion when interacting with those who would persecute the church, right? What did Paul say? He said, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not, What's that mean? Well, we're not to join them in the things they're doing. We're not to speak evil of them. When when we encounter opposition, we overcome it with love if we're able. You know, we're not to do things that are unchristian-like. Now, does that mean that we just stand by and because we have uh, dedicated ourselves to Christ, we just let people take advantage of us and and, uh, do all the kind of things, anything they want to do to us, and we just... Give them the keys to the coffer and let them uh, come in and, uh, you know, uh, attack us or whatever the case may be. Well, no, that's not what he's talking about. That's not at all what he's talking about. We look through the New Testament. 
Christ taught that we're able to defend ourselves. When he sent those on the limited commission, he said, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Take it with you for personal defense, right? We're able to, uh, we have to show good stewardship in our use of funds and things like that. We don't just uh, take everyone's word for whatever the case may be. We have to do due diligence and, and find out and determine if something is accurate or not. But we're not to act ugly toward anybody. We're not to automatically assume someone is, is telling us a lie. Let's ask a few questions. Let's find out. And you know what the bottom line is? When it comes right down to it, if it comes down to a few dollars and someone we decide that we might help someone, it's better, I believe, to help someone and take the loss. Now, I'm not talking about we're giving out thousands and thousands of dollars in the deed to the building, right? But if someone says, hey, I need some gas money, I need some food, I need this. Now, we don't hand out cash here, okay? It's something we just don't do. But I would rather help someone and them have lied to me, and they'll answer for that. They'll stand in judgment for that than to have not helped someone who was in need, right? Because then we've done our part. We've done, we've done good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. Now, when we encounter opposition, we might be able to overcome it if we can understand the situation just a little better. I think we have to be genuinely, genuinely concerned with people's lives and their experiences. You know what every person in the world understands and has an intimate knowledge with? Joy and sorrow in varying degrees, right? And so I think that we ought to feel happy when good things happen to our brethren. We ought to be happy for them. Someone gets a job promotion. Wonderful. Someone comes into, uh, you know, uh, there's a long lost uncle. Just uh, They get a check in the mail for, for a million dollars. You know what? I'm happy for them. I'm happy for them. I love it when I see faithful Christians do well in business. You know, there's nothing makes me happier than for a faithful Christian to, to be a millionaire because they've worked hard and, and they've done well. I love that. I love that. We ought to be happy for them. Now, the world might be jealous, but we're to be happy, right? Let's understand their situation. Let's be a part of their lives. You know, we see that in Luke 15, don't we? We see the, the, the account of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. The neighbors rejoice when they found something, when something good happened. Let's rejoice with each other. You know, sometimes I look around and, and we want to, we want to weep with those who weep, but we don't want to rejoice with those who rejoice. And I say we, not necessarily us, but, but the world in general. But the thing is, life isn't all joy and happiness. So we do weep with those who weep, right? That's what he talked about in verse 15. And here's the thing. We may not be able to empathize with someone. I might not be able to put myself in their shoes because I have never experienced that particular thing. But I can show sympathy. I can be hurt. Because they are hurt. That's what Paul said. You weep with those who weep. Why do we weep? Because we're hurt. We're hurt, right? We love someone and it hurts us and we weep with them. We want them to understand that your pain is my pain on some level. And we understand the situation. Paul said the strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. And not to please ourselves. 
Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good edification. Romans 15, 1 through 2. Victor Hugo said this. The future has several names. For the weak, it is impossible. For the faint-hearted, it is the unknown. For the thoughtful and valiant, it is ideal. I think those are wonderful and wise words. Tomorrow has so much to offer the faithful Christian. That might not come. But tomorrow has so much to offer the faithful Christian. And on the other side of the coin, tomorrow has nothing to offer the non-Christian or the unfaithful. They have no, it has nothing to offer them until it becomes today and they have an opportunity to obey the gospel or to repent of sin in their lives. That's why we must all, every day of our lives, be prepared to meet our God. So what about tomorrow? Be prepared to meet God tomorrow, if that's what happens. And be prepared to meet God today, if that's what happens. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that. Through faith and repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living, preparing to meet God every single day as we live. If you've done that, you become unfaithful. Don't leave here not prepared to meet God. We do not know when that time will come. Through repentance, confession of sin, and prayer, God will forgive any of us. If you need to answer this invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.